So I'm sure you've heard the phrase, the battle of the sexes. That phrase has been in kind of popular culture at least since 1914 when there was a movie made by that name. But I think the phrase, probably for most of us, at least if you're anywhere close to my age, was made famous by that, that tennis match, right, between Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King in 1973. Riggs had been a world number one ranked men's tennis champion. But in 1973, he'd been in retirement for like over 20 years. Still, he, uh, he was a bit of an impresario and he had a big mouth and he opined publicly that women's tennis was inferior and that even at his advanced age of 55, he could beat any of the top female players of the day. When 29-year-old Billie Jean King beat him in straight sets in a match that to this day is, ha, had the, has had the largest audience ever in America, to this day. Uh, when, when, when she beat him in straight sets, some, maybe kind of, I don't know, eating crow or, or wanting, wanting to like make up for it, said, no, this, this, wasn't a, this wasn't so much a battle of the sexes, it was a battle of age versus youth. Regardless of the excuses, Billie Jean King had made her point. We've been thinking about gender these last three weeks. And this morning, the fourth in this series, we are going to conclude our look at gender by thinking about how the two genders should relate to each other. Now, in our cultural context, we, we take the, the conflict, we take the battle of the sexes for granted, I think. We just assume it, right? Uh, women have had to fight for equal rights and equal pay and equal respect in our society. But as much as our culture has engaged and continues to engage in a battle between the sexes, the reality is there's also a, a love affair between the sexes, right? I mean, most people still want to get married. Rom-coms continue to make a huge amount of money. And Madison Avenue knows that the power of love and sexual desire between men and women can sell just about anything. We can't live with them, and we can't live without them, as the saying goes. So here's the question that I want to try to answer today as we conclude the series. Can the battle of the sexes become a union of love? Uh, we'd like to think it can. Uh, that's, that's what's at the heart of all those romance stories and rom-coms. But can it really? Can, can the battle of the sexes become a union of love? Well, I want to invite you to turn with me once again to these earliest chapters of Genesis. We're in Genesis 2 again. Genesis 2. Uh, I'm going to read just the last few verses of the chapter. We looked at a little bit of this last week. Now, this is found on page 2 of the Bibles that we've provided, those black Bibles in the pews and the chairs around you, page 2. Uh, Genesis chapter 2. 
I'm going to start reading there in verse 23. Just for the context, the Lord has, has just made the woman out of, a, out of a rib that he took from Adam. And Adam's getting his first sight of her. Verse 23. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Okay, in case you weren't here for the other three sermons, let me just catch you up what we've covered so far. We have considered that God created us as male and female, equal in dignity and status as image bearers of God to, to, to reflect his character and to reflect his rule, to represent his rule on the earth. We've also considered that God made us distinct. He created the distinct nature of men and women, both by creation, kind of hardwired into our bodies, but also by calling through his revealed word, kind of orienting us to what our lives should be all about. So now we turn to how God intended the two to relate. And the first thing, my first point, the first thing that we've got to be aware of is that context matters. Context matters. In, in the verses that I just read, there, verses 23 to 25, we see the first wedding, and therefore the first marriage, and therefore the first family. And that's the, that, that is literally the first context in which we see a man and a woman relating to one another. Now, how do we know that this is a wedding and a marriage? How, we, how do we know that we've got front row seats as that first bride and groom, you know, meet at the end of the aisle and get married? Well, we know because in verse 24, Moses uses what we just saw in verse 23 as the explanation and paradigm for all future marriages. For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. What reason is that? Oh, because of what the man just said before. This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is not here at the end of Genesis 2, a picture of all men relating to all women in all situations. Nor is it a picture of just any old random man relating to any old random woman. No, this is a picture of a, of a marriage. It's a marriage between the first husband and the first wife. And as you, as you read there in verse 25, I mean, it's a marriage that's marked by total transparency, un unqualified equality. No shame at all. Nothing that would cause them to want to, to hide from each other. It is literally a union of love. They bond with one another. They become one flesh. And the thing that I want you to notice is it's the very last thing we see in an unfallen world, unspoiled by sin. Our very last vision of that world is a wedding. Now, what do these short few verses here teach us about men and women and how they relate to one another in marriage? Way more than I can cover this morning, I'll tell you that. 
So I'm, I'm not going to say everything that could be said. I, I do want to make quick three points, a quick three points. And by the way, this is still my first point. So I got three quick points in my first point. Um, actually, I got more than that. The first point's the longest. Um, but three things that we see right away about, about marriage. First, it is a union of equal but different people, right? Equal, we've, we've covered this. This is a quick review. Equal because they're made of the same stuff. God didn't make uh, Eve, the, the, the woman, out of the dust of the ground. No, he took a rib from Adam and made Eve from Adam. They are made of the same stuff. They are equal. However, they are different because they are man and woman. So just a, a, a quick aside, same-sex marriage is therefore not God's design. God's design was the union, the bringing together of two equal parties who are different, not the same. Second quick point, marriage creates families. This is what marriage does. Families are not just whatever family we decide or choose or, or make up in our heads. No, marriage creates families. The language there in verse 23 of bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh has a shorter version. You see it there in verse 24. They become one flesh. One flesh is kind of the, the short version of bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That language is the Hebrew equivalent of our phrase, our idiom, flesh and blood. So when we say somebody is our flesh and blood, what are we saying? We're saying they're kin. They're biologically related to me. Well, this is not the only place where this shows up in the Old Testament. You see it in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1, where the, where the tribes of Israel, who are all related back uh, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the tribes of Israel come together at Hebron, and they use this very same language, you are our flesh and bone, to explain why they're making David king. You're, you're our kin, so of course you should lead us, they say. So what's happening in marriage? Oh, it's really interesting. In marriage, going forward, two people who are not kin, you can't marry your sister, right? Can't marry your brother. Two people who are not biologically related form a union that reorients their previous loyalties away from who? Away from kin. Who do you leave? You leave father and mother. You leave the people that you're biologically related to. And in this union, all, all of your priorities, all of your loyalties get reoriented. Reoriented to somebody who actually you're not biologically related to, but, but now actually the best language for that person is the language of kin. This, this person becomes your primary family. And that's your primary focus of priority and loyalty. Marriage takes two people who are not related biologically and creates a new biological union that produces new kin. This is radical. This, this, is, this is not easy. Uh, I, I, I talked in the devotional this week about how, I think I did anyway. I was thinking about talking about it. If I, if, if I didn't, my memory is going. Um, I'll tell you now. Um, I, I talk about the fact that, uh, like, every culture in the world has, like, mother-in-law jokes. They all do. 
Uh, every, every culture in the world has rules about uh, kind of how marriage works. And quite often in the fallen world, the rules of our cultures are designed to work against leaving and cleaving and maintaining those ties back to biological origin. I, I tell the story of my, uh, my friend in Cambridge who's Korean-American. Uh, he's a, a strong believer. First generation was sent back to Korea for an arranged wedding, an arranged marriage, very traditional. Thankfully, the family is Christian, so he met his bride, and she was also a Christian. That was a, a really wonderful blessing. It doesn't always work out that way. And he was telling me that in a traditional Korean wedding, and I can't verify this. This is just what my friend said. In a, tradi a traditional, not a Christian, but a traditional Korean marriage, the groom is asked right around his wedding day, if your, mother, if your wife and your grandmother fall in the river at the same time, who do you save? And the answer, and there is an answer, is my grandmother because she has blood. See, the ties of kinship in every culture around the world trump the ties of marriage, but not according to God's word. Something amazing is supposed to happen in marriage, something that utterly reorients our priorities and our loyalties away from kin, away from biological origin, and to this person we are not related to, but now we describe as family. Marriage creates families. Third, this family has a relational shape and an authority structure. This family has a relational shape and an authority structure. And we've already talked about this in, in, in part. We talked about how the man's responsibility created as a man is to leave the place better than you found it, right? And, and how does he do that? By tending and protecting whatever part of the garden he's been entrusted. And the woman's responsibility as a woman is kind of, if I can take that same phrase, make the people that you're around better than you found them, right? By, by helping them, by orienting yourself towards them and helping them. So there is a natural shape to the relationship of marriage in which he is quite naturally and, and by, by calling of God oriented to the task and she is oriented to the relationship. Both have the same mandate, that common mandate that we saw back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, to be fruitful, multiply, to fill the earth and to rule over it and subdue it. They have this common mandate, but they're going to work that out in their own specific nature as man and woman and their own specific calling as man and woman. But here's the thing. In this relationship, they're not operating as independent contractors. There is an authority structure inside of marriage. And you see it there in verse 23. The man names the woman. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. As soon as we hear that, we're meant to be reminded of what was going on just a little bit earlier in the chapter. The man had already exercised authority or dominion by naming all of the animals that God had made. And in verse 19, we're told that whatever he called them, that was its name. No questions. Now the man declares what she will be called. 
it's, I think it's really easy to, to skip over this lightly and to kind of miss the significance. But naming is always an exercise of authority. We, we know this intuitively, right? The, the person who discovers something new or, or who invents something new gets to name it. He, ha- he has the authority, the rights of, of creator or discoverer. Parents and parents alone get to name their children. We didn't tell any of our family or friends what we were going to name our children ahead of time because I didn't want to hear their opinions about the names that we had chosen. It was none of their business what we were going to... It was our right to name our children. And we knew that once the name was actually attached to a person that they were holding and cuddling and ooing and aahing over, it didn't matter if they liked the name or not. They weren't going to say anything, right? They were just going to go with it. But, but it's true, right? Parents have the authority to name their own children. The first man names the first woman in marriage. I I think we see echoes of this to this day, right? In in many cultures to this day, a wife takes her husband's name when they get married. It's a profound act in, in which he is acknowledging that he's taking responsibility for this person, his wife, and she is accepting his authority. Now, this understanding of how men and women relate in marriage, equal in status, differing roles by nature and calling, with authority finally vested in the husband, this view of marriage has a name. It's called complementarianism. It's a long word. It simply means that God created men and women and brings them into a marriage relationship in such a way that they complement each other. They're not interchangeable. They don't do the same thing. They aren't the same thing. They complement one another in marriage. Now, recently, at least in terms of the way historians measure time, but actually, I think, recently in terms of the way lay people measure time, an alternative position has been, has been advanced. That alternative position also has a name. It's called egalitarianism. Egalitarian, same, equal, egalitarianism. Now, in this view, there is no inequality of authority. No one person in the marriage has a a greater degree of authority in the marriage. And in the egalitarian view, typically, there is no distinction of roles in the marriage beyond what nature itself requires. Henson Baptist Church teaches a complementarian view of marriage not an egalitarian view of marriage, because we believe this is what the Bible teaches, and we think it's pretty obvious and clear. Now, we're going to talk in more detail about what that authority looks like in marriage, how this kind of works itself out a little bit, though not as much as you want me to. We're going to talk about it in a minute, but, but I don't want to leave the question of context quite yet. Before the fall... The garden represented three distinct contexts of life, or at least we now experience them as distinct, right? There's home and family. We were just talking about that. There's also the workplace and larger society, right? Adam was told to tend, to work and guard the garden. And it's also the church, the place where God and man meet, where God speaks to his people. 
Since we're still in Genesis 2, I think the natural question, I was actually even asked this question this week, is whether the authority structure that we see in marriage applies to all the other contexts in which men and women relate. Did did that authority structure exist everywhere before the fall? In in not just marriage, but also larger society and, and, and church? And does it continue to exist after the fall? Well, let me try to answer. But again, probably not as much as you'd like me to. Some theologians argue for what is called broad or thick complementarianism. This is the view that not only the distinctions of nature and calling, but also the exercise of authority that we see in marriage is broadly applicable to all of life. Now, there are a lot of different versions of this view, and in the most extreme version of this view, women would be told that they should only aspire to marriage and motherhood, And if for whatever reason they're denied marriage and or motherhood, they should give themselves to work that that nurtures children, that helps men, that promotes domestic life. Don't even think about running for president. Now, other theologians argue for what's called narrow or thin complementarianism. This argues that the exercise of male authority applies only in the home and in the church. The the distinctions of nature and and calling are certainly there. That's all affirmed. But the particular distinction of authority applies only in the home and the church. Now, there are a lot of different versions of this view as well, and the most extreme version of this view would minimize or even deny the applicability of our distinct nature, our bodies, and our calling to other areas of life out there in the world. Now, what do I think? Well, if you've been following this series, you know that I think and I have taught that the Bible teaches that our distinctly created natures as men and women rooted in our bodies and our distinctly revealed callings in the Word of God as men and women are broadly applicable to all of life before the fall and after. So our nature And our calling is broadly applicable to all of life, both before the fall and after. Married or single, home, work, or church, we are not androgynous. We are not interchangeable. We are created different, and we are oriented toward life and one another differently. Men to the task, women to the relationship. But when it comes to the question of the exercise of authority, Do we see male headship in all of life generally? Do we see it before the fall? I'm just going to tell you right now, I was asked that question, and I can't answer it. I don't know. I don't know that the Bible gives us enough data to answer that question. Because the last thing we see is a wedding, a marriage, And we don't get to see how it works itself out into the rest of life. So I don't know. I can't answer that question before the fall. 
But I think the Bible is very clear where this distinction of authority, this giving of authority along gender lines, I think the Bible is very clear on where this applies after the fall. Let's stick with marriage for a moment. Turn over, just flip over a page to Genesis 3. This is a story that many of you are very familiar with. Uh, By the end of verse 7 in Genesis 3, the deed has been done. The rebellion against God and his authority has happened. And that perfect marriage that we saw at the end of chapter 2 has fallen apart. They're ashamed because of their sin. So they, they have to hide from each other's gaze and they have to hide from God's gaze. Look there in, in verse seven of chapter three. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So shame has entered in towards one another and towards God. When God asks the man what happened, what does the man say? What does he do? He throws his wife under the bus. Verse 12, the man replies. So he's been asked by God, verse 11, did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Verse 12, the man replies, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. God judges the man and the woman. He places them under his curse in ways that were specific to their gender and their calling. The man's work now becomes toilsome. The the, the woman is now going to experience great pain in childbirth. But the husband's authority remains in marriage after the fall. It will not be perfect by a long shot. Look at verse 16. God says to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. It's not a nice word. It's not not gonna be perfect. But the first time we see Adam exercising this authority after the fall, we see him exercising it in love, and in hope. Look at verse 20. God's curse is over. And now, verse 20, the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Adam names her again, and he names her in hope. Do we see, so so we see after the fall, male authority inside of marriage still exists. Do we see male authority established by God anywhere else after the fall? Why, yes, we do. We see it in the church. I talked about this a little bit in in previous weeks, the, the, the priesthood. Which, which exercised authority over, over Israel, the priesthood in the Old Testament is limited to men. I, I mentioned that, that, that the priesthood, in fact, is described in Numbers 18 with the same language that was applied to Adam. They were to tend and guard the tabernacle <clears throat> just as Adam was to tend and guard the Garden of Eden. When, when you get to 1 Kings 
chapter 6 and 7, you see that the, the temple, which now replaces the movable tabernacle, the permanent temple, is decorated to look like the Garden of Eden. And, and many of the, the jewels on the high priest's special outfit, many of those jewels uh, that, are, that are described in Exodus chapter 28 are the same as the precious stones that are mentioned in Genesis 2. There's just no question that the priesthood is being described, and the high priest especially, as a second Adam with authority. And what happens when we get to the New Testament? Well, uh, you, you know, you're familiar. When we get to the New Testament, Jesus has lots of disciples, men and women, but the 12 apostles who are the authoritative witnesses to Christ and his work are men. The elders of local churches who, who repeat the apostles' authoritative message and carry on their work of, of guarding and tending and shepherding the flock are also men. We see that in 1 Timothy 3. But, but this is important. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, people of God, it's not all men. It's some men. The gendered distinction of authority is not all men over all women in the people of God. It is only qualified and recognized men who are given authority over men and women in the church. All right, so that's the church. I'm going to talk about this authority more in a minute. I just want to establish that we see God's word putting in place a form of authority that is attached to gender in the church. But it's not all men over all women. It never was in the Old Testament, and it's not today. This particular men who are qualified and recognized. What about society at large? Does God's word structure society after the fall along the lines of male headship, general, kind of universal male headship? No, it does not. We have examples in the Old Testament of kings and queens, of male judges and female judges. We see men and women engaged in productive economic labor inside the home and outside of the home. Of course, as we read our Bibles, we see again and again that the labor that they do is appropriate to their natural physical distinctions. But, but what we see is that they live their lives in all of those different contexts. Now, they live them as men and women. Again, men and women are not androgynous. We are not inter changeable. We are not indistinguishable. Nature and calling will have an impact on what we do out there in the larger world and, and, and society. But in a fallen world, there is no biblical mandate for general, universal distinction of authority by gender. So what does that mean for me in terms of broad complementarianism or narrow complementarianism? It means I hold to a very narrow, broad complementarianism. 
or if you like it the other way, a very broad, narrow complementarianism. I think both of them in their extremes go farther than the word of God goes. And my commitment to you and the elders' commitment to you is that we won't do that, even if it's logical, even if it makes sense, even if it will win us friends. We will not go further than the word of God goes. So I find myself somewhere there in the middle, which is where I often find myself. But that's a different discussion. Context matters. All right, that was the longest point. Let's look at the authority then. What does this authority that's tied to gender look like in both the home and the church? Put simply, the one with authority serves. <clears throat> the one with authority serves. We get a picture of this in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verses 25 to 30. You heard this read earlier, part of it read earlier by Juliet. I want to just read a section of it to you again. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 25, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. Now, Paul had just, in the verses before, called wives to submit to their husbands, which is difficult to hear. We're going to talk about this in a minute. But, but when he turns to husbands, notice that he doesn't tell them now all the ways that they should rule over their wives. He doesn't tell them all the ways that they should demand and expect submission. No, he tells them they should love their wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself for the church. He gave himself sacrificially for her to cause her to be beautiful in holiness, to flourish in his love. Jesus provides and cares for his church with the authority that's been given him. And so should husbands for their wives. And this is not just like a Paul thing. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers won't be hindered. As husbands who have been given authority, we should use our authority to honor our wives to live with them in such a way that they understand we're not just running roughshod over them, we're not just doing whatever we want. No, to live with them in such a way that they understand we get them, we understand them, what they need, who they are, how best to love them. Now, I think we see something very similar in the church when we turn to the church. 1 Timothy 3 lays out the qualifications for elders who are men. Most of those qualifications have to do with character. But 1 Peter 5 and Acts chapter 20 show us what this authority lived out actually looks like. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, elders are told, shepherd God's flock among you, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. 
In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul has gathered the elders of the church in Ephesus, and this is the last time he's going to be able to talk to them. And he says to them, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. What is this authority supposed to do? It's it's to shepherd, to to feed. It's it's to guide. It's to protect. It's to serve. You know, that last phrase in in Acts 20, the, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, I think that last phrase points us back to where this understanding of authority, the nature of authority, whether it's in the home or the church, comes from. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus confronts his disciples because his disciples were eager to exercise authority. They knew that kingdom was coming. He was going to be king. They were going to be sitting on his right and on his left, and they couldn't wait to exercise that authority. And Jesus corrects them. Uh, Let's see if I can find it. Here's, here's, Here's what he says in Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Oops, that's, that's not Mark, that's Luke. Luke chapter, Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, Whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. When authority is understood in terms of serving, when, when it's understood in terms of self-sacrificially giving yourself so that those that you're responsible for, those that you may have authority for, actually flourish. When it's understood this way, rather than being understood as the, the right to make all the decisions and to command what's going to happen. You know what happens in the battle of the sexes? Half of the soldiers lay down their weapons. Half of the soldiers, all those men out there on the field, just put their weapons down. They stop using their authority as a weapon to batter women about the head and shoulders with. And instead, begin to use that authority as it was always meant to be, not a weapon, but a means of loving and serving and building up. In the home, that means no abuse of authority. It means no physical coercion ever under any circumstances. It means no emotional or verbal bullying under any circumstances. Men, you need to understand that there is a tone of voice that you may be accustomed to using out in the workplace that you should never use at home, ever. It means instead laying down your rights. It it, it means spending whatever energy you've got and whatever creativity you have and whatever time you have 
for the good of your wife and your children, not for yourself. Todd reminded us last week, there's no submission card that you get to play at home in your marriage. No, the, the only card you've been given is the sacrificial love card. And you should be playing that card all the time. For those of you men that are single and, and want to be married, let me just tell you, if you're not learning these habits now of self-sacrificing service towards others, they will not magically appear on the day you get married. Today is the day to begin developing those skills, those habits, those, those muscles of self-sacrificing service. In the church, it also means no abuse of authority by the elders, no coercion, no manipulation, no, no bullying. This is what, one of the things that makes the, the, the scandal in the Southern Baptist Convention so heinous right now, as there are so many examples of people in authority using their authority to protect themselves rather than those who've been victimized. The authority of elders in the church is only ministerial authority. What do I mean by that? To, to be a minister is to be someone who exercises authority on someone else's behalf. The elders actually have no authority of their own. The only authority that the elders have is a ministerial authority as we represent Christ's authority in the church. By myself, I got no authority, none. Now, that means that the authority of elders is not only ministerial, it is only declarative. It is only declarative. There's only one king in the church, and his name is Jesus. And his word and his word alone rules. His word and his word alone commands. His word and his word alone can bind your conscience. My word cannot do that. All I can do is say, to the best of my ability, thus saith the Lord. This is what Jesus says in his word. Beyond that, I got nothing. I got nothing. Uh, it's why elders are called to teach. Because it's not that we're just like into instruction. No, it's because we've been entrusted to declare somebody else's word, the king's word to the king's people. Beyond that, like a husband to his wife, what should elders be about? They should, they should be about being examples of love to the flock. They should be about using their energy and their time and their creativity to, to guard and tend and protect the flock. Men, we saw this in, in Genesis chapter 2. Adam was called to tend the garden. That word can quite easily be translated, serve the garden. This is what we are to be about in the home and in the church. All right, third, if the one with authority serves, what does this mean for those under authority? What does submission to authority look like? What, what, what does it look like? Well, I would say the one under authority trusts. The one under authority trusts. 
And that's true in the home and in the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, going back there again, in verse 22, Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Paul calls wives to submit to their husbands as to the Lord, and then then he draws the analogy. The church submits to Christ in the same way that the church does that, so wives should submit to their husbands. But then he, he moves on, I think, to what he thinks at the moment people really need to hear. So he doesn't expand on that. And we all wish Paul would have expanded on verses 22 to 24. He, he doesn't. It's Peter who describes what this looks like. I, w- I want you to listen as I, as I read from 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. You're going to hear some of the same language that Paul uses. 1 Peter 3, verse 1. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live. When they observe your pure, reverent lives, don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way submitting to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Peter uses the example of Sarah who submitted to Abraham to help wives understand what does this look like to submit to your husbands? Now, here's the thing. Abraham was not exactly the model husband. Not once, but twice. He put her life and her honor at extraordinary danger as she gets swept up into these harems. How could Sarah submit to such a subpar husband? And he was. Well, Peter makes it clear in verse 5. She put her hope in God, not her husband. I don't think it's that different in the church. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, we're going to see very similar language. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them. So we've heard that language, right? Obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they can do this with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. Where is the church's confidence to trust and follow their elders? Is it in their elders? No. It's in the Lord who is going to hold the elders to account. I think we get a beautiful picture of what this trusting submission looks like in Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, a centurion has sent a message asking Jesus to to heal his servant who's about to die. And so Jesus begins to make his way. And and then before Jesus can even get there, the centurion sends a second message. And here's what it says in part. 
just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority. Jesus, you don't need to come all the way to my house. I'm not worthy for you to even be under my roof. Just from a distance, say the word and he will be healed because I too am a man under authority. For wives in marriage, for church members as they relate to their elders, trust flows finally from our trust in Christ who gave us an example, trusting his own father, even if it meant going to the cross. When submission is understood as trust, not subservience, when submission is understood, understood as trust, rooted not in the trustworthiness of the human authority, but the trustworthiness of God who established that authority. Do you know what happens in the battle of the sexes? The other half of the combatants put down their weapons. And it no longer becomes a battle. Now, I want to be clear here, especially for, for, for wives and, and for church members. Trust, submission to authority and trust, never, ever means following someone into sin because that would be to betray the even higher authority that we are under, which is God's authority. The apostles make that clear repeatedly in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. You can go read about it. It also doesn't mean that you never get to ask questions or even raise objections. Jesus, who is the perfect example of trust, asked that the cup be taken from him in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26. It's also not inconsistent with holding authority to account. Paul actually gives us instructions for how we're to hold elders to account in 1 Timothy chapter 5. It does mean following the leadership of the authority that God has placed in your life. So in the church... That means, and what, what it practically looks like in, in, in our case, is that in the church, at members' meetings, you know, the final authority rests with you, the congregation. But, but in general, motions come from the elders. And in general, the church trusts the elders and the motions that they bring. That's not being a rubber stamp. That's actually what a healthy relationship between godly authority and trust in godly authority would normally look like. The reality is, if you can't trust your elders and you're always voting against them, you should get new elders, elders you can trust. In marriage, unless that trust is broken by adultery or abandonment, which the vast majority of the elders of this church would say includes physical abuse. Wives, I would say to you, Put your hope, not in your husband, but in your God. And then trusting in him, help your husband be better than he would have been without you. Now, does this distinction of authority in marriage and church mean that regardless of what I've said, 
there actually is inequality. There really is inequality. Stop, you know, Michael, stop playing word games. If we don't have the same authority, then we're not equal. I would just point you to, like, sports. I don't often go to sports, so I hope everybody appreciates this, but I think this illustrates the point. Think about a basketball team. Because of nature and because of decisions that the coach makes, different players have different positions. They play different roles on the team. The tallest, slowest player on the team isn't point guard. They're center, right? And, and the point guard, even though they're probably the smallest person on the team, actually is given authority to run the plays. Now, do those distinctions mean that the teammates are unequal? Not at all. The teammates are totally equal. In team sports, it takes the whole team to win a game. It's no different in the church, and it's no different in the home. God made us different by nature and calling, but he made us equal. In some contexts, a man in a marriage or a group of men in a church will have authority that others don't. But that authority and those differences are designed so that together in marriage and in the church, we can accomplish the goal that the Lord has given us for that context. Why did God do it this way? I don't know that he actually explicitly tells us anywhere in the Bible why he did it this way. It seems that maybe he did it this way because he is setting right what went wrong in the beginning when the man abdicated his authority and plunged the world into ruin. If you'd like to explore that more, I would highly commend Todd Miles' talk last Sunday evening, as well as the talk that he gave to the women of the church on this topic, which is in our podcast feed. What about relations between men and women in the church in general? I'm going to say this really clearly. There is no special authority that men in general have over women in general in the church. There is no special authority that men in general have over women in general in the church. Instead, what the New Testament describes is that we are together members of a family that has God as father and Christ as older brother. And so how do we relate as men and women who aren't married to each other and to, as men who aren't necessarily elders, right? How do we relate? We relate as siblings in the family of God. Outside the specific context of marriage or elder church member relationship, we live out our, our calling and our nature as men and women. We're not androgynous, we're not interchangeable, but we don't think about that relationship in terms of authority. We think about it in terms of brotherly and sisterly love for one another. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 21, as we submit to one another in the fear of Christ, we all submit to one another as brothers and sisters in the body for one another's good. Or we can flip it and we can talk about it in terms of authority. 
we are all, as siblings, authorized to speak the truth in love to one another. Ephesians chapter 4. Of course, natural distinctions are going to impact how we do that. Paul tells Timothy, exhort older men as a father, older women as a mother, younger men as brothers, and younger women as sisters with all purity. So so natural distinctions affect things. Nevertheless, the way we relate is as a family. Like members of a natural family, there should be friendship and intimacy between brothers and sisters in Christ in this church. But of course, it's not a sexual intimacy. It's the love of your own flesh and blood. Only we don't need to be related to each other in order to love one another if we have Christ in common. Because Christ has made us family. We're almost done. What about all the larger world of work and society? Well, I would just say, once again, context matters. And to borrow Augustine's distinction, the city of God is not the city of man. The world is in rebellion against God. And in the world, the battle of the sexes rages. We got a sad spectacle of this this last week in the the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard defamation trial, right? When the verdict came down, the media reported that this was the end of the hashtag MeToo moment. Men always win was the headline that ran in Rolling Stone magazine. In truth, the whole sad spectacle, if you were following that, is just an illustration of the curse that we read about earlier in Genesis 3. Yes, there have been times when our culture has borrowed from Christian truth, times when our culture has looked more like what the Bible talks about men and women should be. There have been times when men were expected to protect women. There have been times in our society where where women valued and were valued for their ability to nurture. But let's be really clear here. The post-World War II years that everybody points to, the 40s and 50s, they were no golden age. Even when our fallen culture adopts what look like Christian values, it twists them and distorts them. The 1960s and all of their revolutions were not a reaction to how wholesome, good, and healthy the 1950s were. In the working world today, it's, I think, a good thing that no field of endeavor is denied to a woman. Oh, but what's not a good thing is the cost. No field of endeavor is denied to a woman so long as she's willing to delay or even deny her ability to have and nurture children. Meaningful friendships happen out there in the workplace. That's that's a good thing. So long as the rules of the workplace are very carefully followed. I had two different discussions this week, one with a man, one with a woman out there in the workplace. And and, uh, uh, one of them was commenting about how easy it is to have friendships with men. The woman was saying how easy it is to have friendships in the workplace. And I said, yeah, but 
But do they show up at your house on Saturday for lunch? No. No, they happen inside of a very tightly controlled context. But the guy I was talking to was commenting on how the men in his office, they're looking to get married. But how tricky and difficult it is. Because they really, as non-Christians, have two places to look. They can look at work or they can look at a bar. Both have their own sets of rules. Neither are great. Both can get you in a lot of trouble. The rules of the world essentially render all of us out there in the workplace functionally single and functionally sexless. What the world gives with one hand, it takes away with the other. And its solution to the battle of the sexes is procrustean at best. Which brings me back to my original question. Can the battle of the sexes become a union of love? Where, where can we find help to that end? Well, I'll tell you, the only one who can help is Christ. And here's the argument that I've been driving toward this entire sermon. Only Christ can turn the battle of the sexes into a family of love. This is what I want to leave you with. This is kind of what I want to leave you with with this whole series. There's a reason our last vision of an unfallen world is a wedding. It's not a gauzy, nostalgic vision of an age long past and unrecoverable. It's a promise. A promise of a future that God had planned from the very start. A promise that was so incredible that he knew he had to hardwire a picture of it into creation itself if we were to believe it. In marriage, God takes two very different and unrelated people, unites them in a one flesh union and creates a family. And as Juliet mentioned earlier, that is a picture of what God has accomplished through Christ in the gospel. We all have a natural worldly family. It's, 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 it's the, the family that we have in our flesh, the, the world in its rebellion against God. Ephesians chapter, three, chapter 2 verse 3 says that we are by nature children of wrath. Our sin has earned God's curse just as much as Adam and Eve sin did, and that curse continues to work itself out in our distinct nature and in our distinct callings as men and women, the battle of the sexes is as fierce as ever it was. But in the gospel, God in his love sent his son. Jesus lived the life that Adam should have, that we should have. And then as Adam should have, he gave that life. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter five, he gave it for the church. Jesus cleansed us through his shed blood. And Jesus makes us beautiful by giving us his righteousness, but by giving this forgiveness and righteousness to all who repent of their sins and put their faith in him. Listen, as Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 5, quoting Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, 
but I am talking about Christ and the church. Friend, if you're not a Christian, this is what the gospel is all about. It is about bringing you into a relationship of love, a union of love with your creator, cleansing you of everything that makes you feel ashamed and making you all that you were meant to be in him. We'd love to talk to you about this more. We'd love to talk to you about what it would look like to be loved by Christ in this way. But it begins right here, right now, today. You can simply turn away from your sin and your rebellion right where you're sitting. Put your faith in Christ and ask him to love you. As I just read, he loves sinners who turn to him. The point of all of this is that on the first day of the new creation, we've seen the last day, right, of the unfallen creation. The point of all of this is that on the first day of the new creation, there's going to be a wedding, a union forever between Christ and his bride, the church. John shows us that day. He talks about this in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Christian, men and women together, we are the bride of Christ. Yes, men? You got to deal with that. That like one of the main images for your future is that you are part of the bride of Christ. And that means we are family. Together, we are God's family. Now, what's so interesting is John doesn't stop. As he's describing that day and our glorious future, he doesn't stop with that image of the church as the bride of Christ. He keeps going, describing the glory of that day. And a few verses later, he records the Father's promise to us today for that day. He says in verse 6 of chapter 21, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Men and women together. We are the bride of Christ, but because we are the bride of Christ, we are God's family. And because we are God's family, we are God's sons. Yes, women, you've got to deal with an image of your glorious future that forces you to relate to that other kind of gender. Sons of God, siblings and co-heirs in God's family, Single or married, divorced or widowed, male and female. Our hope is not finally in the end of the battle of the sexes here on earth. Our hope is the end of the warfare between us and God in heaven. That war was won at the cross. 
And faith in Christ's victory makes you today both bride and son. Only Christ can turn the battle of the sexes into a family of love. Are you a part of that family? Let's pray.